Please turn in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3. As you turn to Lamentations, just know that we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper uh, together this morning. So I encourage you to be preparing your hearts for that. And if you, you didn't grab the elements to participate in the Lord's Supper, you can, you can grab those as we stand up to read the Word here in just a moment. Uh, the Lord's table is open to all who are believers. Uh, we encourage you to... So uh, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you're welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. We encourage you to be a, a member of a local church or working toward membership. I know some of you may be uh, be- between churches or kind of thinking where the Lord might might uh, be calling you, and so we invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us as well as you seek to be obedient to the Lord and, and committing to a body. And then also, um, if, if you are uh, wanting to find out more about Bethany and what it looks like to, to be a uh, member here, we're doing our Discovering Bethany class two weeks from today and three weeks from today. It's a two-week class, and so I'll, uh, I'll be teaching that. And so you're welcome to, to come and uh, find out more about the church as we uh, talk about uh, God and, and what he, his purpose for us would be as, as a body of believers. Also, as, you, as you're there in Lamentations chapter 3, just, just know uh, if there are some things that we as, as a church can be praying for you, and lament is, is something that we do as, as a body of believers, not just individually. If there are some things you would like us to be lamenting with you, about. I encourage you to, to fill that out in your comment card. You can either do that online or the app or just in the, I think there's some at the back, some comment cards you can put in the offering boxes in the back. We'd love to be able to, in the, in the coming weeks, to, to pray with you as a, as a church in those things. And if, if uh, probably keep those, uh, probably won't put names with them and stuff, but if you just want to fill that out on comment cards, uh, please, please do so. Next week, uh, we're going to continue in our study in Lamentations. It's, it's our Sanctity of Life Sunday, so an exciting uh, time there as well. So last week, we looked at chapters 1 and kind of saw chapters 1 and 2 are dealing with similar themes as the, uh, the writer, Jeremiah, laments as he expresses his sorrow uh, over the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And we saw him looking at the totality of the destruction and talking about the totality of his grief as he surveyed that destruction. Here in chapter 3, we're going to look at the God to whom he and we lament, and then next week we'll be talking about the idols that are exposed through lamenting as we live as exiles in this world. But we're in Lamentations 3, and we're going to focus on verses 21 through 39, so the very center of the book of Lamentations, the center of chapter 3, and the center of the entire book and if you would stand with me for Abel to this morning, in honor of God as we read his word. And I'm going I'm to go a couple verses earlier to help us get the, the context. Verse 19, Jeremiah has been talking about God and, and the way in which God has afflicted him. And he says in verse 19, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. 
It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. And Father, we are overwhelmed this morning as we contemplate the deep truths about you that are revealed in these passages. And, and Lord, uh, we, we recognize that that we are unable to understand these things. I am unable to communicate them accurately apart from your divine enablement. So, Lord, pour your spirit into our lives this morning. Help our minds to be able to grasp these truths and our hearts believe them and love them and help us love and obey you as a result. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, uh, someone made an observation to me that that others have made to me before. It's, it's something that you, you hear often, and maybe most likely it's something that many of us have, have struggled with or tried to think through. Uh, they were talking to me about the, writing to me about God, and they said, you know, in the Old Testament, God judges and, and he appoints the death of, of so many. But then in the New Testament, he said, I, I don't see God responding the same way. And maybe that's an observation you've, you've had as, as well or kind of something you've, you've struggled with. It, 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 we see in the Old Testament, it seems like God the Father is, is exhibiting judgment and, and, and his wrath and, and justice. But in the New Testament, especially in God the Son, we, we see mercy. What, what does that mean? Does it mean that, that God changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament? He, he became nicer? No. God never changes. If he did change, there'd be a danger, right? He was, he, he was uh, mean in the Old Testament, got nice in the New Testament. What if he changes back? Or, or what if he just, he got, he got uh, more good and, and then he's going to get even, even better later? That, that's not possible. God is and has always been infinite perfection. So God hasn't changed. You see, I think sometimes we minimize one thing, we, we minimize the wrath of the Son. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is going to judge, we see. Revelation 19, Revelation 19 says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. His robe dipped in blood. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nation. So let's not minimize the terrible wrath of the Son. But let's also not minimize the incredible mercy and love and kindness of the Father. Ezekiel thirty three eleven. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he says his desires that the wicked would, the wicked would turn from his way and live. God's deepest joy is found in repentance. 
there are some exciting things we're going to talk about this morning. If you're like many people, you've struggled to understand how God views you. Sometimes we think of God the Father as like this, this Father whose love we have to earn. And as we think about our sin in relationship to, to God the Father, we think, well, God is not just displeased with the sin, he's displeased with me, and as he, as he thinks about me, and as he, he, he looks at me, he's, he's constantly feeling this, this sense of disappointment. This isn't the son or daughter that I wanted. Or we think about God the Father, we say, well, God the Father, is, he wishes that he could destroy us or, or, or punish us, and, but, but God the Son is, is constantly intervening for us, saying, hey, God, no, 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 no. Uh, remember, I, I died on the cross for their sins, so, so don't show your wrath toward them. And God says, okay, that's true, but he's kind of a little bit reluctant about it. Brothers and sisters, that is not the right way to view God. The Father... The Son and the Spirit, the triune God, are united in their everlasting, unending, unquenchable love for you. Lament helps us grasp this. In fact, here's the main idea that I want us to think about this morning. In lament... We confess truths about God we would not have grasped apart from suffering. There are some truths about God that are so deep and so wonderful that they're beautiful to to behold, and yet, apart from lament, they're they're truths that that we wouldn't have been able to understand. They're, They're truths we wouldn't have grappled with. And kind of a side note here, one of the beauties about lament is that it's done in a community. And, and so right now, I may not be going through a hard circumstance, but maybe my, my, my sister is. And so as, as I lament with her and I, I see her go through this, this time of suffering, as we lament together, as we lament as a body, what happens? The truths that God is, is revealing to her in her sorrow and her suffering are truths that I glean and understand as well. And so as we lament as, as, as a body, we are confessing some very deep truths about God that we would not be able to grasp apart from suffering. There are some amazing things we are going to talk about this morning. Four truths we're going to talk about that we celebrate about God as we remember his steadfast love in the midst of sorrow. Things that we must confess about God in our lament. We read two things God doesn't do and two things that he does do. Let's talk about the first one, something that God doesn't do. As we think about God's steadfast love and as we worship him in lament, we realize that God doesn't exhaust his mercy. Look at chapter 3 with me. I want to talk about the the whole chapter at first. Remember, as we talk about chapters 1 and 2, remember what I said? I said that chapters 1 and 2, each chapter is like an acrostic. The letters of the Hebrew alphabet are Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, Hey, Tate, so forth, and, and they go through to, to uh, Tav. So uh, the, the Hebrew writer here is, is highlighting 22 letters of the Hebrew Old Testament, and each verse begins with a different letter of 
the Hebrew alphabet, right? That's chapters 1 and 2. Well, what do you notice about chapter 3? It has 66 verses in it. Now, what do you think is happening in chapter 3? Some of you are already there. You figured it out. You're very good at math. You're, okay, well, 3 times 22 is 66. What's happening here is instead of going Aleph, Bet, Gimel, the writer is doing each letter of the Hebrew alphabet to start each verse. So instead of Aleph, Bet, Gimel, it's Aleph, 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 Bet, 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 Gimel, 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 and so forth until you get to the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav. So that's what's taking place here. And look at chapter 3 and notice what it says about God. God is doing hard things here. God is, is afflicting his people. And Jeremiah, as he talks about the affliction that he's experiencing, is very clear. This is coming at God's hand. Notice, notice what it says about God. It says that, verse 4, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Verse 5, he has besieged and enveloped me. Verse 6, he has made me dwell in darkness like the dead long ago. Verse 7, he has walled me about so that I cannot escape. And so forth and so forth and so forth. And so God is the, the agent that is or God is the one who is appointing Jeremiah to, to, and the people to go through these things. Now, here's a question that I have that I think is a very good question that maybe you have as well as you look at this text or other texts that talk about God's sovereignty. If God is the one who's doing this to Jeremiah, if it's God's fault, if you will, why on earth would Jeremiah cry out to God? I mean, it's God's fault that he's going through this. Why would he cry out to a God like this? Well, look at the text. Look at verse 21. He says, in the midst of all of this, as, as his soul is, is bowed down, he says in verse 21, I, I remember something. I, this is something I call to mind. And because I think about this, in the midst of all my sorrow, as I think about these truths, this is why I have hope. Listen to what he says in verse 22. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The, the Hebrew word here is hesed. The, the Hebrew letter that's beginning this, this, uh, these three verses is hate. And it's, 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 it's this word hesed. Hesed is my favorite Hebrew word, as we've talked about before. It means, as the ESV translates it here, steadfast love. Mercy is very closely connected to it. It's God's covenant, faithful love that never ends. He says, I remember God's hesed, his, his hesed, his steadfast love. I remember his mercy. And then he says this in verse 22. He says, I remember that the, the hesed, the steadfast love of the Lord doesn't ever cease. And his mercies, which are closely connected to his steadfast love, they never come to an end. Some translations say they never fail. The word there means to be consumed up or to be destroyed or to come to completion. And so it's used all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament. So, for example, in 1 Kings, it's just talking about the completion of the temple. It says the temple was, 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 fail, was, was uh, completed. It, they're, they're working, working, working on the temple, working, working, working. And then there was a time where they stopped working because the job was done. And Jeremiah gives us an illustration, a kind of a picture. He says they're, they're new every morning. Every morning they are, they are fresh. Now what does this mean? It means that when you woke up this morning, God's mercies were renewed. And it wasn't like they were depleted yesterday. That's not what Jeremiah is saying. 
In eternity past, imagine all the mercy that God had. He had an infinite supply of mercy. And he created mankind and, and over the thousands of years of, of, of human history and the billions of people who have walked the face of the earth, the billions of people who ex- have experienced the, the mercy of God. Uh, imagine all the mercy that God has displayed on people, all the mercy that is poured out on people every day. And yet, when you woke up this morning, the mercy of God had not been deplenished by, by, by any amount since eternity passed. It was still an infinite supply of mercy. God's mercy toward his people is never extinguished. That's a really hard thing for you and me to grasp, right? My, my mercy is diminished very easily, right? Being tired, being annoyed, a person who I don't really think deserves my mercy because they're kind of a jerk. You know, th- those, my, my mercy gets, gets, gets destroyed pretty quickly, consumed. Maybe this past, uh, this past month, Christmas, New Year's, you're visiting family, in-laws were coming to visit, and, and you told yourself, this is the year, this is the year I keep my cool, Right? I'm going to be the model of grace and mercy and God's love. And, and you were the first couple hours, right? And then your sister-in-law, oh, your sister-in-law, right? She made that passive-aggressive comment. I just wish you had more time so you could be a better cook, right? You'd be really good if you just had more time. Ah. Oh. And you look down in the mercy well, and it was empty, right? <laughs> no more mercy. That's not God. God's mercy doesn't grasp that way. God's mercy is, is un- unending. This is a staggering truth, and it, it's brought to mind as we lament in a broken world. The text itself is explicit with the application. What does it say? It says, uh, it says there in, in verse 24, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, so because God's love never ceases, because his mercies never come to an end, what am am I going to do? I'm going to to hope in him. That's the application. In lament, what happens? I I grapple with this truth about God. Okay, this is is happening to me. This is is what's happening in my life. And yet, God's mercy is never ending. His steadfast love never comes to an end. And and so, what am I going to do? I'm forced to confess to God, I'm going to hope in you. I'm going to believe this to be true. A person who's hoping, to, hoping in God, and lament, and hope, by the way, means something different, a little bit, there's a different nuance than in English, and, and hope, it means, I, I hope this happens, it may, it may not. Hope here means, means a, a confident expectation of, of something that's going to take place in the future. I, I, I'm hoping, I'm trusting that this is what God is about and what he's going to do. And so a person who's, who's hoping, who's lamenting with hope, is, is a person who's not angry with God. They're not angry with God. They're not bitter toward God or toward those even who have caused them pain. They're using God's inexhaustible mercy towards them as they think about those who've caused them pain. It, it means that I'm, if I'm lamenting with hope, it means that I'm, I'm quick to forgive. I desire those who've harmed me to come to repentance. I don't justify, if I'm hoping with 
if I'm lamenting with hope, I don't justify sinful responses towards those who have done evil toward me. Here's the second truth that I want us to think about with God. Number two, so here's something God does do. God does bring good things to sufferers. Verse 25, in fact, uh, the, 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 word, the word tov begins each of these three verses. It's the next, uh, t- uh, tet is the next Hebrew letter and, uh, that, that begins this section, and, and tov is the word that begins each of these three verses. It, it's the Hebrew word for good, right? Like boker tov, you've heard that. Good morning, good day. Uh, tov begins each of these verses. So you, it says, uh, essentially, verse 25 Good is the Lord. Verse 26, good it is that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 27, good it is for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. And so over and over again, the writer here, Jeremiah, is saying these things in our suffering are good. There's a a phrase you've probably heard uh, Kent or other biblical counselors in our church use. um, Hard is not bad, hard is just hard, right? And I was talking with Kent about this this last week. He says, you know, sometimes now I I say hard is not bad, hard is impossible. In other words, we we can't deal with the things that are hard on our own. He says, but "But I've also been using a, a new phrase as I think about this biblically. I say hard is not bad, hard is good. Hard is good. There are good things that God accomplishes in bringing about hardness into our life. In hard times, it causes us to seek out to him, to cry out to him. Hard times prepare us for future reward. Hard times rid us of our idols, as we're going to talk about next week. Hard is not bad. Hard is actually good. Good is the Lord as we wait for him in our suffering. The text itself, again, provides us with an illustration in verse 27. What does it say? It's, it's good for a man that he bear his yoke, bear a yoke in, in his youth. So it's talking here about it's good for people who are young to go through hard times. So parents, we just remember that, right? Uh, our, our kids, as they've gotten older, and they take on more responsibility. Sometimes as a parent, you want to protect them from hard times. You don't want to have them go through hard things. But as you see, your, your kids kind of, begin to grow older and assume more responsibilities and go through difficult times. You say, boy, this is, this is good for them. This is helping prepare them for the, the difficulties of life, to help them trust in the Lord more. And the same is true for you and I. God is preparing you and I for eternity in our suffering. God does bring good to the suffering. He, he provides the application again in verses 28 through 30. We we want to be careful not to, to grumble in our lament. It says you, we, don't, we don't raise up our voices in complaint. Okay. Let's move on to the third truth, because I want to spend a lot of time here. At least more time. God doesn't reveal his heart in the acts of affliction he brings. Now, this, this may sound controversial, okay? And I, I have to confess, I'm a little, I'm sad as I come to these verses. <laughs> these are some verses this past week that literally woke me up in the night. 
and I'm sad because I, I know I don't have the ability to explain these as well as I would like. There's that, uh, that, that far side cartoon that, that maybe some of you have said before, seen before where there's this, this kid in the front row of a class and the, the teacher's teaching, the kid has an abnormally small head and the kid raises his hand and says, Mr. Osborne, maybe excuse, my brain is full, okay? Uh, that's how I felt sometimes over this, this last week as I was just kind of wrestling with these verses. My brain is full. So let me encourage you, let's, let's wade into some deep and dangerous waters together. Dane Ortland in his book Gentle and Lowly has a chapter on these verses, and he, he says this. He says that these verses, again, are the exact center of the book. He writes, as a theo- at the theological bullseye of the whole book of Lamentations, we are told that God does not bring pain from his heart. Here in Lamentations, the Bible is taking us deep into God himself. The one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He is not reluctant about the ultimate good that is going to be brought about through that pain. That's why he's doing it. But there's something that recoils within him in sending that affliction. The pain itself, I want to be careful here, the pain itself does not reflect God's heart. Now, again, we're wading into dangerous but glorious waters, brothers and sisters. These are some waters that can threaten to overwhelm us. But it's in these deep waters where, if we're sensitive to the Lord and the work of his spirit here, some of the richest worship can take place as the waters overwhelm us with God's love and his truth. Here's what I think Jeremiah is saying. Jeremiah is saying that God's heart is not fully understood by looking at his acts of judgment. God, in his word, speaks of a certain divine reluctance he has in bringing about judgment. Right? Scriptures, it talks about God's judgment, often talks about some reluctance that God has in bringing about judgment. But he does it. Why is that? If God is somewhat reluctant about doing something, at least, and I'm using human terms here, I'll explain more in a second, but if, if God is somewhat reluctant about some action that takes place and yet he does it, what does that mean? It means that there is a deeper purpose there behind what he is doing. As we look at this action, we say, okay, well, this, this isn't some, the action itself isn't something that brings God delight. There must be something deeper here that God delights in that we grasp as we look at his judgment. There's some, something more foundational to his character that's driving him to do these acts of judgment and to cause this affliction. Oh, brothers and sisters, we're in some deep things here. Let's, let me unpack it by looking at four truths. Number one. So God doesn't reveal his heart in the acts of affliction he brings. Number one, think about this. We know that God is sovereign over all things. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. 
We see this throughout the text. God is one who's sovereignly bringing these things. And in, in, at the end of the, the passage that we're looking at this morning, he says, isn't it from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? So God is sovereign over all things. The second truth that I want you to think about here is that God afflicts and God brings grief and God brings judgment. That's undeniable in Scripture. What, what takes place here? God is a bear lying in wait for me, says Jeremiah. He's, he turned aside my steps. He tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrows. God is, is bringing affliction upon Jeremiah. And then as we look at, at this verse, th- these passages, it says, the Lord causes grief. God is the one who, who causes grief. He afflicts. He grieves the children of men. So God afflicts and God brings judgment. But number three, we don't find out the deepest truths about God's heart from his afflictions. We don't find out the deepest truth about God's heart from his acts of affliction, more precisely. When God speaks of doing good to his people, we read this in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32, 41, God says, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in a land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. So God speaks of doing good. And he says, I'm doing this with all my heart and with all my soul. But when he speaks of, of judgment, he, we see it worded differently. So Hosea 11.8, as he talks about his, the judgment that he's going to enact specifically on his people, he says, my heart recoils within me. God says that about his heart. Again, human language to accommodate what's, what's taking place here. My heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender. This isn't, in his, his heart, in some senses, what God delights in. We don't find out the deepest truths about God's heart from his acts of affliction. This doesn't mean, now let's be careful here, this doesn't mean that God is, is, is vacillating on what to do. He's not up there going, well, Should I judge? Should I not judge? I just don't know what to do because I'm conflicted. That's that's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is there's something contrary to what God loves when he brings about judgment. That's why scripture calls his judgment his strange work and his, his alien work. That's the phrase that's used in Isaiah 28, 21. Let me read a couple quotes. I'm, I'm going to quote a little bit more than normal because some of the things I, that I'm saying I think sound too amazing to be true. That you think, okay, this can't be right. But, but listen, to what, listen to what Stephen Charnock, he's writing in the late 1600s in, in his book, his work, The Existence and the Attributes of God. And if, if you haven't read it or, or picked it up, it's, it's an amazing, amazing work. Listen to what he says. He says, God calls the acts of his wrath his strange work, his strange act, a work not against his nature as the governor of the world, but against his first intention as creator. His first intention as creator was to manifest his goodness. 
Therefore, God moves with a slow pace in those acts. He brings out his judgments with relentings of heart and seems to cast out his thunderbolts with a trembling hand. He does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. God only hates the sin, not the sinner. He desires only the destruction of the one, not the other. The nature of man does not displease him because it's a work of his own goodness, but the nature of a sinner displeases him because it's a work of the sinner's own extravagance. So so God does judge, but there's something strange in that work. Joel Beakey says these wise words. He says, and, and, and listen carefully here. He says, we must remember We must remember that wrath is not precisely speaking an attribute of God, but it's an exercise of his righteous love. The Bible says God is love, but it doesn't say that God is wrath. He said, whoa, 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 Daniel. Are you going liberal on us? (laughs) No, beloved. God's wrath is real, and God's wrath is ferocious, and God's wrath is is terrible, and God's wrath against those who are unbelievers is unending. And my plea with each person in here would be to turn from their sin and to place their faith in Jesus Christ, to avert God's wrath, to receive his his love and his mercy. That might be my plea with each person in here. But at the same time, listen to what Beaky goes on to say, God's wrath is an activity of his Listen to this. God's wrath is the the activity, the outworking of his infinitely intense righteousness toward all who oppose him. When sinners are unrepentant and unforgiven, the same goodness of God that made them and sustains them also abominates them. Therefore, God's wrath is an aspect of his jealousy, which is not some eruption of unstable passions, but God's wrath is his infinite, eternal zeal for the glory of his name. So we don't find out the deepest truths about God's heart from his acts of affliction, which brings me to the the fourth statement that I want us to think about. See, what this means is his actions aren't contrary to his heart, but there's something deeper driving why he does what he does. We gain our deepest understanding. We gain our deepest understanding of what God delights in by looking at his steadfast love and his mercy. Now, I'm not saying that there's a contradiction in God. I'm not saying that God is made up of parts, and part of him's angry, and part of him's merciful, and he's more merciful than, than angry. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. God is, God is all one. We use the word simple, not like he's, he's not, uh, not deep or something, but just, just he, there's nothing that he is that he's part of, and he's not made up of different parts. God doesn't change. He's not sometimes angry and more often merciful. That's not how God is. He's always everything, all that he is at once. Even though what we may personally experience from God may change based upon where we are in relationship with him. But here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you don't start with God's acts of judgment to understand what he loves, what he delights in. You start off with what God delights in in order to understand his acts of judgment. And so often, this, this is what I, I think is true for many of us, we, we start with, with it backwards. 
we start with God's wrath. We say, okay, well, this must be how God feels towards me, and, and he doesn't love me, and, and, and he's constantly displeased with me. We say, no, 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 let's be careful here. Let's start by understanding what God loves, what, what, what he delights in, and then as we understand what he delights in, then we can understand his wrath. Whenever our, our kids were, were young, you know, they'd, they'd uh, toddlers or whatever, they, they start crying, right? And, you know, if, if we're with someone or our kids are melting down and, and, and crying and just, just tearful, we don't, we don't just walk by them and, you know, maybe our, our friend says, you know, what's wrong with, with, with your kid? And I'm like, so many things. But um, what, what, what's wrong with your crying kid? I'm like, I don't know. I guess they're just a crier, you know. That's just how they are. No, we say, okay, there's something that they, they want. There, there's, there's something that's causing them something they, they love and delight in that's, that's causing them to be sad right now. I want to understand what it is they, they love to understand why they're sad. I don't just start with the action and assume I know their heart. To understand God's view of us, we look to the abundance of his steadfast love demonstrated in his mercy. In his wrath, we see God's love of righteousness, not his love of inflicting pain. Some of the things God appoints don't bring him immediate delight. They're, they're means to a greater end. Here's what, how Thomas Goodwin puts it. Thomas Goodwin writes, when God exercises acts of justice, it's for a higher end. It's not simply for the thing itself. There's always something in his heart against it. But when he comes to show mercy, but when he comes to show mercy, to manifest that it is his nature and disposition. It is said that he does it with his, his whole heart. There's nothing at all in him that is against his mercy. The act itself pleases him for itself. There's no reluctance in him. Therefore, acts of justice are called his strange work and his strange act in Isaiah 28, 21. But when he comes to show mercy, he rejoices over them to do them good with his whole heart and with his whole soul. Beloved, do you see the beauty of God in lament? In lament, we're, we're wrestling with that truth. We're going deeper and deeper into a cave, and, and there's a fear as we go into the, the cave of, of lament that we're only going to find more darkness. But as we go into this deeper and deeper into this cave and, and lament, expressing our sorrow and, and, and seeing the sorrow of others, we go deeper and deeper in this cave and we find something more beautiful. There's a, an allegory, I think, in The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. Remember the, the story of The Silver Chair? Many of you have read the, the Chronicles of Narnia. And, and there in, in The Silver Chair, these two children and this creature called Puddleglum, remember what they're trying to do? Spoilers, slight spoilers ahead. They're trying to rescue a prince. And they go deep underground. And as they go deeper and deeper underground, it gets darker and darker and darker. As you go deeper and deeper underground, the, the light from above is, is a distant memory. In fact, at, at one point, they're so deep underground that they doubt whether the outside world even still exists. Many of you have been there. You've gone so deep into your grief, you sometimes wonder, does the outside world where the sun exists, is and is shining, does that even exist anymore? But something interesting happens in the story. I was thinking about it this week. At some point, they go so deep 
that they find that there is a world beyond that dark world, even deeper. As they rescue the prince, they encounter a world even deeper beneath the surface of the earth. And at one point, they, they peer down this deep chasm into that world below, and it is dazzling in its beauty. Lewis writes, The depth of the chasm was so bright that at first it dazzled their eyes and they could see nothing. And when they got used to it, they, they thought they could make out a river of fire. And on the banks of that river, what seemed to be fields and groves of an unbearable hot brilliance, though they were dim compared with the river. There are blues, reds, greens, and whites all jumbled together, a very good stained glass window with the tropical sun staring straight through it at midday sun might have something of the same effect. And one of the creatures that lives deep under the earth invites him to, to come with him further down. He says, you'll, you'll find greater joy there than in the cold, unprotected, naked country out on top of the, of the world. As you and I go deeper into lament, we don't find more darkness in God. At first, it's frightening, right? It's frightening to think about the, the arrows of God. It, it's frightening to think about the, the, the things that God afflicts, how God has filled us with bitterness at times. And, and yet, as we in lament what happens, we confess and we wrestle and we grapple with truths about God that we would not have otherwise grappled with. And we say, okay, it's not from his heart that he afflicts. It's not from his heart that he grieves the children of men. There's something foreign to him in this. And so there must be something deeper about God. As we go deeper in, into, into God, into his wrath, into his affliction, into his sorrows, we say, okay, there's something that God is more passionate about that, that I don't understand. And it's the, the infinite beauty of, of God's love for his glory. As we go deeper into God, we don't find a God who delights in causing pain. We don't find wrath for the sake of wrath. We find a God who at his core is an unceasing, blazing fire who passionately loves that which is of greatest value, the glory of his own name. At his core, we find a God who loves his glory. We find a God who loves holiness. And beloved, we find a God who loves us. I've just been consumed with that this week, thinking about it. I would not have been thinking about that apart from lament. Fourth, we'll just read these verses. Number four, God does something. God does act for your good and his glory. This is what we confess and lament. God is doing these things for our good and his glory. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? If I did not trust the character of God, I would not trust his sovereign hand. In lament, we confess truths about God we would not have grasped apart from suffering. We struggle to think rightly about God. We struggle to think of him as a father whose love we must earn his wrath seems like, like who he is at his core because if we were God, that's how we would be. If you treated me the way I treat God, I would not have warm thoughts toward you. But what is God? God is a God of love. He loves his 
infinite perfections, and one of his perfections is his mercy, and he loves, he delights in showing mercy to sinners. Let's let this truth point us to the Lord's Supper this morning. This is God's grace to us this morning in our lament. We have the ability to, to see, to behold the Son broken for us. To receive this, this supper, we're aided in our understanding of, of, of God and the sacrifice of his Son. God's wrath points us to a, a love that is deeper than we could possibly imagine. It, it, point, imagine it, it points us to his true heart, a heart of mercy and forgiveness. I want to have you meditate on these words of Charnock as well. The wisdom of God in redemption is visible in manifesting two contrary affections at the same time in one act. The greatest hatred of sin and the greatest love to the sinner. As we see God's wrath, that's what we see, the greatest hatred of sin imaginable and the greatest love to the sinner we could comprehend. Here is eternal love and eternal hatred, a condemning of the sin to what it merited and an advancing of the sinner to what he or she could not expect. As we prepare our hearts, let's pray. Let's first ask God for his forgiveness, for his deliverance from a wrath that is this far more terrible than we could even begin to comprehend. But then let's also praise his goodness. Let's bask in his glorious love as we see, even through lament, his heart to forgive. Let's pray. Oh God, our, our sin is far worse than we could imagine. Lord, we, as we talked about last week, as we looked at your word, we recognize that the, the sorrow that is in this world is due to sin. We confess our sin to you this morning. And our confidence this morning is not that we say we're sorry in the right ways. Our confidence in, in coming before you and partaking of, of your supper is not based on the goodness of our church in, in terms of, an, of a group of people. Father, we are relying upon what we are celebrating here as we partake of the, the bread and the cup. The body of your son broken for us, the, the blood of your son that inaugurates this new covenant. It's this covenant of grace that you have revealed in your word throughout human history. And Father, all we can do as we peer into your heart is bless and worship your name. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Father, family, if you would take the bread. bread is the body of the Son broken for us. We, we take this bread and we experience our, our union with Christ. A body broken for us, not in opposition to the will of the Father, but by the will of the Father and a, a covenant made from eternity past to redeem his people. The night 
that he was betrayed after he'd given thanks, Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my covenant, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And if you prepare to take the cup with me, Jesus said, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we proclaim the death and the resurrection of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, until he returns. Father, we are in awe of you this morning. Help us to leave this place refreshed, encouraged, overwhelmed by your love for us. And Lord, as we meditate upon your love for us, let us, let us live our lives loving others as well, showing them the incredible infinite love and mercy of the God who saved us. Amen.